Hey, 11 o'clock, how you guys doing today? Everybody good? Man, it, it is a great day to be here at Coastal. Uh, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited today to be able to continue in the series that we're doing for the month of November called No Fear November. And we've been basing this series, as you guys have heard the last couple weeks, off of a verse from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. And it says this, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now, the last couple weeks, we've heard TJ, as he's talked about in week one, overcoming fear, and then last week talked about the fear of intimacy. Now, I've got to tell you that I've, I've really enjoyed, I've loved the first two Sundays in this series. And if you missed either one of those sermons, I want to ask you to, to take some time this week, go online, um, watch the video, download the podcast, but make sure that you check those out because this concept that we're talking about, this, this idea of fear, the topic that we're doing in this month, is, is something that all of us are dealing with on one level or another. All of us are facing this in some way. And I think that in those first two weeks that Pastor TJ spoke, there's just, there was some really, really good stuff in there. Now, as he talked, um, uh, both weeks he talked a little bit about phobias. And I thought it was interesting thinking and, and, and learning about some of the phobias that people have. And, and this week, as I was getting ready for, for the message today, I learned something that I thought was, was really kind of strange, but also interesting about phobias. Now, the most common fear, the most common phobia is public speaking. And the second most common phobia is the fear of dying. So what's interesting is that there are more people that would rather die than speak in public. I got some yups down here. Yeah. Like I'm thinking when I look at that, I'm like, are you serious? Like what, how is that possible that more people would rather die than speak in public? And here's my hypothesis that I'll share with you this morning. I think people are afraid to look foolish. And, and if you've stood up in front of a group of people who, who have all gathered and, and assembled in front of you to hear you speak, then, then there's a really good chance that people have some sort of expectation. They think that you have something worthwhile to say. Maybe, maybe they think you have something interesting to say or, or something entertaining to say. In the case of preaching, you might have something life-changing. So with those kinds of expectations placed on someone who's speaking in public, I guess I can understand that there's, there's a real chance that, that the public speaker could look foolish. I mean, who wants to have a Steve Harvey moment? You know, did you guys see this? The, the Miss Universe 2015, where Steve Harvey announced the wrong winner. So, like, it's totally over. He's going to announce the winner, and he says, Miss Columbia is the new Miss USA, or I'm sorry, Miss Universe 2015. And she gets the giant bouquet of flowers. They put the crown on her head, and, you know, like, you're, like, pushing the little pins in to make it stick and all this stuff. She's doing the little walk, right? She won, and then Steve Harvey's like, uh, hey, like, hold up a second. Just not, that's not really how it's supposed to go. Miss Columbia was the first runner-up of Miss Universe. Uh, Miss Philippines, you are the new Miss Universe. And they literally had to take the crown off of Miss Columbia's head and give it to Miss Philippines. It's a great Steve Harvey moment. I mean, you can, you can look foolish when you stand up in front of somebody and speak. People don't like looking foolish. 
You know, I was emceeing a, uh, at an all-church retreat about five years ago. I was uh, a pastor at a, a large church, and every year they did this annual, like, weekend they called it the all-church retreat, and it was just, they like took over a, a retreat center campground thing, and, and all weekend we had like worship times, and we had a speaker, and we had all these different sessions, and what we learned is that getting people to actually come to the session and kind of get their seats and settle in on time became a bit of a challenge. They were all hanging out at the table getting coffee and snacks or whatever, and so I was emceeing the event for the weekend, and so I came up with this brilliant idea to do stupid human tricks at the beginning of each session just to get people to kind of sit down and and they're coming, they're finding their seats without really missing anything really important. And so, so I get up there on the first time and I say, hey guys, we're going to open up today with stupid human tricks. Who wants to come up and share one of their stupid human tricks? No hands go up. And I'm like, uh, okay, I'll do one. So I did one. And then right after I did it and people laughed, then like someone else raised their hand and, and someone else raised their hand. So we had a couple and every single session we would open with stupid human tricks. But each time I said, who wants to come up and share one of their stupid human tricks? And nobody would raise their hand until I did one and made everybody laugh, made myself look foolish. And then someone would be like, oh, okay, well, I can do that. I can get up and do that. There's a, it, I have a lot of stupid human tricks. So it worked for the weekend. I was able to kind of keep things going. But, but the reality is that like, the fear of foolishness keeps us from things. You know, it's the fear of foolishness that, that keeps us from raising our hand in fourth grade because what if we don't have the right answer? It's the fear of foolishness that keeps us from asking someone out on a date because what if they say no? It's the fear of foolishness that keeps us from, from changing our major in college, even though we completely hate what we're doing because we're afraid of the unknown. It's the fear of foolishness that, that keeps us from changing jobs even though we're miserable in what we're doing. It's the fear of foolishness that keeps us from praying for miracles. Now, I want to talk this morning about this, this fear of looking foolish because I think that this is one of the things that holds so many of us back from allowing God to do something amazing in our life. How many, how many of you would love for God to work a miracle in your life? How many people would love for God to work a miracle in your life? How many of you would love for God to use you to work a miracle in someone else's life? Right, a lot of hands going up. Now, if I could guarantee you that God was going to do something miraculous, or God was going to use you to do something big for him in somebody else's life, if I could guarantee you that it was all going to work out great, how many of you would be down for that? But see, I can't guarantee that. I can't guarantee that when we go out on a ledge, when we go out on a limb, when we really stretch, when we, when we completely leave our comfort zone for God, that, that there's not going to be some sort of nervousness or fear, that it's not going to be really outside your comfort zone and really difficult, and, and maybe it's going to be super hard, and maybe people are going to be looking at you. Maybe it's not going to work out quite the way you thought, so then you're going to be confused. Wait, did God really say? Is he, is he still doing what I think he's doing? I can't guarantee that. And so because we can't guarantee everything that's going to happen, that's why we have this fear. This fear, this fear still kicks in for most of us because although a lot of you raised your hand, there's no guarantees of how things are going to work out for us when we really go out there on a limb. And so, so we tend to do one of these three things because I can't guarantee you that you'll never look foolish in life. There's, there's one of three things that most of us do. Some of you do one of these things kind of naturally. Some of you do a combination of these. The first thing is we freeze. My son, Evan, he's 10 now, but 
um, a, a few years ago, he was like between the ages of five and seven, and my son was a freezer. So, you know, he'd be sitting on the couch or something watching a cartoon, and, and he'd spill an entire glass of chocolate milk like all over himself and the couch. And he would just like freeze, like look of terror. Uh, like. And Katie and I, like, now that, that freeze might have been because of the way that we conditioned him as parents. You know, like he might have thought, oh, I'm about to get nailed. Because like my wife and I are not like the calmest people at times. And so it could have been a conditioned response to our complete overreaction to something as, as small really as spilling some milk. But, but he would have this look of terror while Katie and I are like, get up, grab a towel, don't let it soak into the couch, right? And he's just the whole time, he's like, <laughs> he was a freezer. Now, as we get older, we don't want to talk about freezing, so we try and put a much more mature spin on this response, and we say, you know, it's like paralysis of analysis, you know, and, and, and do you know what paralysis of analysis is? That's, that's when, you know, we've got a decision to make in life. Maybe it's at our jobs or, or it's parenting or it's just something going on. And we've got to make a big decision. And, and instead of making that decision, we just keep thinking about it. We keep stewing on it. We're afraid that if we make a decision, it might be the wrong decision. So we just keep overanalyzing the situation. We list out all of the pros and cons, all of the possible outcomes that could possibly happen. We stress out about it until the point where the time comes that, that we've run out of time to make the decision. Now we no longer even need to make it because we've wasted so much time analyzing it that the time has passed to make the decision. And so we just move on to the next decision that because we're afraid we'll make the wrong one, we probably don't make that decision either. This was, this was me early in my ministry. Um, I, I had a really hard time. Anytime we were making kind of big, kind of directional decisions of what we were gonna do in ministry, I was always afraid that if I made the wrong decision, this was when I was in youth ministry. I was always afraid that like, I'm gonna make this decision. We're gonna do this, and next week there's gonna be zero kids that show up because they're all gonna hate my decision or all the parents are gonna hate it or, or whatever. So I would get stuck with this paralysis of analysis. And I got on staff at a, a large church where I was the junior high pastor and there's another guy named Dino who was the high school pastor. Now, Dino was the exact opposite of me. Dino honestly did not think that any decision he ever made could possibly be wrong. Like, just a dreamer that at first annoyed the living daylights out of me. Like, we'd be planning some joint ministry event with, like, his group, the high schoolers, my junior hires, even some other churches in the community, and he's the type that's like, so we need some entertainment. Let's call Penn and Teller. Um, we'll see if they can come. Um, let's get Taylor Swift to come in and do a concert. Like, he would just think of, like, the craziest names, and I'm like, What? You know, I'd sit there and go, oh, nobody's ever going to come to our event, you know. Um, but so us working together was actually really good because he would challenge me and push me and kind of draw me out of that fear of being wrong into thinking, like, what could God really do? So, so some of us, we freeze in those moments of fear when we don't want to look foolish. We don't really want to go that far out on the limb. Others of us, we run. Now, one of, the, one of the kind of funniest family, family memories that, that my mom and I share together is, is of a time I was probably somewhere between eight and 10 years old. And I had, I had heard a song, I don't know where I heard it, it must have been on the radio in the car or something like that. And, and it, it had this kind of really catchy tune. It was a, a really stupid song from a guy, I had to look it up this week just to find out what it was. It was a guy named Brian Highland. 
It was, a, it was an album that he released in 1960, and it was called Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini. Some of you guys are like, what? And some of you guys are like, ah, I know that song. Stupid song. Like, just an incredibly ridiculous song. So, to this day, I really don't know what this song was about. I know there was verses to it, and there's this chorus, and it, it must have had some sort of point. I, to this day, don't really know what it's about, but, but I couldn't get this one part of the chorus out of my head. And, and this is the part that I had stuck in my head. It was an itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny, yellow polka dot bikini that she wore for the first time today. Some of you guys are singing along. <laughs> yes, you know this stupid song too. So that's all I knew. And that's like not even the whole chorus. It's just like one line of this stupid song. Sorry, Brian Highland, I don't, wherever you are. Um, so so I had heard this song. I've got it stuck in my head. And, and, and one evening I was in the shower in my parents' like master bathroom. My brother must have been in our bathroom or something because I'm in their bathroom for some reason. And, and I, I, I like to take really long showers. I still like to take really long showers, like till the hot water's gone. Then I'm like, oh, I guess I should get out now. So I'm in my parents' bathroom, I'm taking a shower, I'm just sitting there letting the water run on me, and I'm singing that one line of the chorus over and over and over again. If I did it 10 times, I did it 100 times, and I'm not exaggerating. And so by the time the water kind of starts running cool, I'm like, okay, I guess it's time to get out, ran out the hot water. So I get out of the shower, I dry off, and, and unbeknownst to me, my mother, hearing me sing this stupid chorus over and over and over again, she had decided this was a great time to hide in her bedroom and wait for me to come out. And so after I dry off and I walk out of their bathroom into the bedroom, my mom, at the top of her lungs, starts singing, It was an itsy bitsy teeny weeny. And I dropped my towel, and I'm on a full naked sprint out of the room. Like, I didn't even attempt to make the turn into the hallway. I just ran into the opposite side of the hallway wall at full speed, crumpled to the ground in the fetal position because she had scared me so bad. <laughs> I am convinced that if that wall had not been there, I would still be running. <laughs> you know, when God calls us to do something that's hard, something that's, that's hard for him, like, it's hard, oh man, God, I don't know if I can do this. You know, we may not actually sprint, but we still run. Many of us still run. We, we just, we run differently. We tell people, ah, I'm too busy. I don't know if I can do that. I, I don't know if I can help there. I don't know if I can sign up for that outreach event. I don't, I don't know if I can go on that mission trip. I'm so busy. Or maybe we say, you know, hey, that sounds so awesome. I'll, I'll pray for you while you go do that. I'll, I'll make a donation. I'll support your ministry. Make a donation. Tell me, tell me where I can write a check. My $10, I'm sure it'll help. But see, we avoid actually getting our hands dirty for the Lord. We may not be running, but we're still running. So, so sometimes in, in our fear, we freeze, and sometimes we run. And sometimes we just do something stupid. Now, I was trying to think about a time that I could share with you, a time where in my own fear I did something stupid, but honestly I had a hard time kind of narrowing down the options. So I want to share with you a story from Scripture because I think it'll help us to understand that we're in, we're in really good company here with this idea of doing something stupid. So we're going to read from Genesis chapter 12, and I want to highlight what's happening here before we read. This is, this is an incredible story of 
of a time where, where God has chosen this man named Abram. And he's chosen Abram to be the father of the nation of Israel. So God has picked Abram, and he has told him that a great nation was going to come from him. And that God was going to make a covenant with Abram and all of his descendants. So the great nation, all of Abram's descendants, are going to have this covenant with God. They are to be God's chosen people. So this is how chapter 12 starts. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the families on earth will be blessed through you. That's a pretty good deal if you're Abram, right? He's got to be thinking, man, this is, this is feeling pretty nice. God, God chose me, and he's going to protect me and bless me and all of my descendants. Now, seven verses later, not seven chapters, seven verses. This is what we read. At that time, a severe famine struck the land of Canaan, forcing Abram to go down to Egypt, where he lived as a foreigner. As he was approaching the border of Egypt, Abram said to his wife, Sarai, look, you are a very beautiful woman. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Let's kill him, and then we can have her. So please, tell them you're my sister. Then they will spare my life and treat me well because of their interest in you. So, so basically, Abram's like, hey, hey, babe, um, you know how I'm always telling you that you are smoking hot, right? Well, see, as we head into Egypt, these guys are gonna, they're gonna look at you and they're like, man, that woman is so fine. Did you see Sarai? Man, she's a good looking woman. And so because this is how they're gonna see you, um, what they're gonna do then is go, what, what is she doing with that Abram dude? So, so see, sweetie, they're gonna think that because you are so beautiful that they're gonna want you for themselves, but I'm your husband, so I'm kind of in the way and they're gonna kill me first so they can have you. So I've got this great idea, Sarai. See, here's what we're gonna do, check it out. Just tell them you're my wife, or you're, you're my sister. If you just tell them you're my sister, no, 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 seriously, check, it, it's all good, Sarai, it's, it's okay. Like, they won't kill me then. I mean, sure, you're gonna have to marry somebody else, but at least we'll be able to eat. All right, all the women in the room are like giving their men the stink eye right about now. Right? That, like, Abram literally is, he's so afraid that he tells his wife, just tell him you're my sister, let them do whatever they want with you, and at least we get to live. This was the guy that God had just chosen seven verses prior to be the father of the nation of Israel, and he had promised all of those blessings upon him and all of his descendants. But I think it's a great illustration of the reality that sometimes in our fear, we just do some really stupid things. So, so when God is moving in our life, when, he is, when he's calling us to do something that's big, something big for him, what we do is, is that sometimes we freeze, and sometimes we run, and sometimes we do something stupid. And if we don't want to do that, then we've got to do something else. And here's, here's the reason we're talking about this today. Because what we do with our fear determines what God does through us. What we do with our fear determines what God does through us. And so if we can agree, 
If we can all agree in here that, that freezing or running or just making really stupid boneheaded decisions is not a good response to God wanting to move and work in our lives, then what is it that we need to do with our fear? First, I think we need to rely on community. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 says this, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. You know, this past June, Coastal sent a team of people from this church to South Africa for a mission trip. And I can remember being at the very first interest meeting for this trip. It was, it was almost a year ago. It was last December. And they had a meeting just like, hey, here's what the trip is. This is what it's all about. This is how it works. And if you're interested in going, then you can sign up. And so it was just an interest meeting. And I remember going to the first interest meeting. So it's six months before the trip, right? The, the, the interest meeting's in December. The trip doesn't leave till June. So six months prior, I'm at the interest meeting, and, and there's a bunch of people there finding out about it. And at that meeting was a young woman from Coastal that most of you guys, a lot of you guys know. Her name's Jasmine Rodriguez. I asked, yes, yeah, some of you guys, they like Jasmine here. Um, so I asked Jasmine if I could use her story this morning, and she said, go for it. So, so Jasmine was there at the meeting, and Jasmine, at that interest meeting, she signed up to go on the trip. And man, she was like floating. She's so excited that she signed up. She's like walking on her tiptoes because she's like, man, I'm, I want to do this. And then the interesting thing is that during the six months between the day that she signed up and the day that they departed for the trip, Jasmine dealt with fear so much more than she ever expected. She would ask questions constantly. Did, did I make the right decision? Should I really be going? Am I going to be able to raise enough money for the trip? Oh, money. How am I going to ask people for money? I can't ask people for money. Nobody's going to help me pay for this trip. It's really expensive to go to South Africa. I can't do this. How am I going to survive a 20-hour plane ride? I don't think I can do the South, South Africa trip. I, I can't keep my own life together here in the States. How am I going to go help anybody in South Africa? These are common statements and questions that Jasmine dealt with. These are common fears that she dealt with over and over and over again during that six months fear after fear, week after week. I can't tell you how many times I would get here at 5.30 a.m. on a Sunday morning, and Jasmine was part of our setup team. Shameless plug, 5.30 a.m. setup team. Come see me after church if you want to join that. Um, she was part of our setup team, and, and I would come in in the morning and be like, hey, Jasmine, how's it going? And she would like respond with some sort of like freak out about the mission trip. I'm like, Jasmine, it's like four months away. What are you so worried about? But every single week, it was like, how are you doing? Oh, man, this mission trip's coming up fast. Like, Jasmine really dealt with a lot of the fear. But the good thing is, I wasn't the only person here at Coastal that Jasmine was telling about all these fears regarding this mission trip that she was dealing with. She was very open with a number of people here about the fears that she had about being a part of this trip to South Africa. And she would not just share the fears, but she would ask people to pray for her. And people were constantly and continually reassuring her. They were praying for her. They were telling her, look, everything's going to be fine, Jasmine. Don't back out of the trip. God is going to do something amazing through you on this trip. Jasmine didn't back out. I remember the first time that I saw her when she returned from the mission trip to South Africa. And I couldn't wait to ask her how her trip was, what her experience was like. And Jasmine could, like, she could barely frame meaningful sentences together to tell me about her experience. She was so excited about what God had done in South Africa, what, how she had seen him move, and how she had felt him moving in her life. But see, if Jasmine hadn't relied on the community during those six months of off and on fear, 
I don't believe that she would have been on the trip. But see, she did rely on community. And by sharing her fear with those who cared about her, she was able to allow God to do something amazing in and through her. We all need to rely on community. And the second thing that we need to do is that we need to give God control. We need to give God the control. Now, I mentioned my son earlier. Some of you guys know my son, Evan. He's, he's 10 years old right now, so for those of you guys that don't know him, my wife and I happen to think that we've got the coolest kid in the world. Like, he's super funny. He's silly. He's very quick-witted. He's, he's thoughtful. He's a great friend. He's super social, loves to be around the big party and whatever's going on. But, but this year, out of the blue, just completely caught us off guard, my son Evan started dealing with anxiety. And I don't mean like the munching on your fingernails kind of nervousness. I mean real, full-blown anxiety panic attacks. And my wife Katie and I had no idea what to do. We didn't know what caused it. We didn't know how to fix it. We didn't know how to help him. We were trying everything. We were reading books. We were doing research online. Uh, we were taking him to specialists. We were trying to figure out like what in the world is going on. Because, because at this point, we, really, we realized that, that it was keeping him. This, this anxiety, these panic attacks were stopping him from doing the things that he loved. He, he was having a hard time just going to baseball practice because the panic attack would set in. He was having a hard time going over to a friend's house, which was like one of his favorite things to do. He was even struggling to come here to church and to go into the kids' ministry. Just all kinds of anxiety. And so we started asking him, you know, help us understand, what are you feeling in the middle of these, these anxious moments, in the middle of these panic attacks? What, what's going on? And he said, I, 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 I fear, I feel fear, but I don't even know what it's for. I get angry at myself. I feel like a failure. He told us that in the middle of these anxiety attacks, he says, God feels so far away from me. And the hardest part, though, was that, that we watched him, and Evan had absolutely no mercy for himself. He would, he would say things like, I'm so unworthy of all this time that you and mom are trying to sell. I, I'm not worth it. I'm so hard to love. I make your life so difficult. He just felt completely unworthy. He had no mercy for his own struggle that he was going through. And so my wife and I were trying to do everything we can, books and, like I said, internet, taking him to specialists, talking to everybody that we could think of. And then something amazing happened. At the last night of worship that Coastal did, it was right here in this room this summer, and Evan was right here in the front row, kind of where Susie's sitting now, and, and Evan's over there with his mom, and, and as the music was playing, the panic set in. He started getting really agitated, and he said, I really had a hard time, and, and my wife said that, that he kind of grabbed her hand, and as she looked at him, in, in tears, he said to her, Mom, I can't do this. He was kind of getting to that, that freak-out boil-over mode of, of panic and anxiety. And my wife, at that very moment, she just, she held onto his hand, and she started praying for him. She said, at that point, I was completely at the end of my rope. I didn't know what to turn and say to him anymore, and so I just started praying. Now, my wife and I had prayed about this a lot in the past, but this time, Katie said, I prayed something very different. I said to God, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to help my son. Nothing that my husband and I are doing is, seems to be making any kind of a positive difference. And then she said to God, I love him too much to see him like this. God, he's yours. I give him to you right now. Please help him. Now, she told me later, she told us, she said, you know, I've, I've been his mom now for, for 10 years, and, and he has always been my son. 
And that night, I had to say to God, God, he's yours. And then the coolest thing happened. Evan leaned in and he hugged her and, and she said that she could just feel physically his body relax. She knew something had happened right then. And she looked at him and he asked her, he said, Mom, can we go outside? And she knew that this wasn't just like a, an escape mechanism of I'm, I'm about to have an anxiety attack so I need to escape the room. She knew that there was something different. So she said, sure, come on, let's go outside. And as they walked outside, she said, he said, Mom, can I, can I talk to you? And she said, yeah, what's going on? And he said, well, well when, when you were praying, God gave me a message. He said that, that he closed his eyes, even with all the lights and everything in the room, he closed his eyes and everything was completely pitch black dark and he could see a light in the distance coming toward him. And the closer it got, the, then he realized it was a word. And so he saw these words that would come and they would come into focus and he'd be able to see the words. The first word he said was hope. And then faith. Belief. Mercy. And then the last one was have mercy. And he told my wife, he said, I knew that that last one, have mercy, was God saying I needed to show myself mercy in the middle of my struggle. Now, he still has some, some times that he has to work through, but that was the beginning of some real healing for him. Such a cool experience for him to experience God moving and speaking to him, but also for us as parents, because it reminds us, it reminded Katie and I as his parents, not to hold on too tight, that we need to give God the control when we're afraid. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 says, so humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time he will lift you up in honor. It's really humbling to acknowledge to God that you cannot provide for your own child what they need, and then to, have, and then to, to release them into God's care. But see, when we face fears, we need to remember that, that the truth is that in many situations that we face in life, we are inadequate. We don't have the strength. We don't have the smarts or the resources or, or fill in the blank. We are inadequate so many times, and that's why we're afraid. And while we may not possess all the tools that we need, we have to realize that God does. We need to give Him control. The third thing that we need to do is that we need to have the courage to move in God's strength. You know, one of, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story of David and Goliath. It's a, it's a super common story. Most of you have heard the story of David and Goliath. You know, it's one of the stories you teach kids in, in our kids' church. But, but let me just set the scene here. The Israelites which are the chosen people of God, right? We talked about Abram and God making a covenant that his descendants would be his chosen people. So these are the chosen people of God, the Israelites. They're in a battle with the Philistine army. And, and the Philistines have brought out their greatest warrior, and it's a dude named Goliath. Now, he's not just an ordinary guy that happens to be a great warrior. He's actually a giant. He's nine foot, nine inches tall, his armor weighs 125 pounds. Just the iron tip of the spear that he carries weighs 15 pounds. The Israelite army is, is over here on one hill, and the Philistine army is over here on another hill. And Goliath comes out into the valley between them, and he challenges them. He says, hey, send out your best warrior. We'll fight. If I win, you surrender to us. If he wins, we all surrender to you. 
and nobody in the Israelite army would go and fight him. They were all afraid. This goes on for 40 days. Every morning, Goliath comes out into the valley and makes the same challenge. And every morning, every single person in the Israelite army is too afraid to go out there and fight. Now, to make this long story short, David is just this little kid. He's still a boy. He's a shepherd. He takes care of his dad's flocks. And his dad sends him to the, to the battle because his older brothers are in the Israelite army. And his dad basically says, here, here's some food. Take this food. Go check on your brothers. Feed them and just see how they're doing. And so when David gets there, he finds out about this giant, and, and he finds out how afraid the Israelites are. He walks right up to the king, King Saul. He walks up to the king, and he says this in 1 Samuel 17, verse 32. He says, don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way that you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. But David persisted. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from his mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and I club it to death. I have done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And the Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. And then David walks out into the valley to fight the giant Goliath with nothing but a sling and a handful of rocks. And with one shot, he kills the giant Goliath. Now, he didn't win. He didn't kill Goliath because he was bigger or faster or stronger or more skilled or more experienced or more well-equipped. He defeated the giant because he had the courage to move in God's strength. I think... I think if we're being honest, we all want to see God move. We all want God to do something in our life. We want him to use us for something amazing for his kingdom purpose. But see, in order for that to happen, we have to allow ourselves to be put into situations where we have to have God move. But see, the reality is that, that so many of us, we want a safe Christianity. We want the safe and secure type of life that's full of ease and comfort a life where there's really no risk involved. You know what, what, what I think many of us do is that, that we pray and we might say, Lord, would you please do a miracle in my life? Use me for a miracle in someone else's life. Use me for something amazing for your kingdom. And then in the very next breath, we pray, Lord, but, but please keep me out of any situation which would actually require a miracle. Keep me out of any situation in life that would be too big for me to handle in my own strength, with my own resources, with my own talents. Because see, anytime that happens, God, I, I get afraid. But it's in those very moments that God is setting us up to see him moving in our life and accomplishing amazing things in his strength through our weakness. If you want to overcome fear, so that, so that God can use you for something amazing, you've got to rely on community. You've got to trust your brothers and sisters that will walk alongside of you. You've got to give God control. Realize that you are inadequate by yourself, but he's not. And then you have to have the courage to move in God's strength.
Would you guys pray with me? Father God, I just ask that this morning, Lord, would you help us to maybe first just realize that, that we are inadequate, that we aren't strong enough. We don't have all of the resources or all of the talent or all of the strength that, that we need to do something amazing for you. God, would you help us to, to have the courage to step out way, way, way out there on a limb for you, to not worry about looking foolish, but to realize that you've got something incredible that you want to do in and through each one of us. There's miracles just waiting to happen in our life. We can be a part of miracles in other people's lives if we'll step out of the way and allow you to work through us. God, help us not allow fear to get in the way of you using us.